Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Repeat podcast today in Berlin with Dirk Hoke. Hi, Dirk. Hi. Glad to be here. You are the CEO of Airbus Defense and Space, and I'm actually very happy that we're doing this. I used to be, or I used to uh, write my master thesis with Airbus Defense and Space, so I know quite, quite a bit about the company. Um, but there's obviously a lot of topics that we can talk about. First, as usual, we always ask our, uh, our guests to kind of, um, you know, tell us a little bit about where they come from, mm -hmm. uh, kind of, you know, a little bit in a storytelling way on their professional life about the different stages and how they ended up basically where they are today. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in a in a little town south of Hamburg uh, called Hitzacker. Um, I studied mechanical engineering in in at the Technical University in Braunschweig. And after my my uh, diploma, I went directly to to Paris, worked for Renault in order to get some abroad experience to practice my French. And then I started uh, my career at Siemens in an international trainee program, worked uh, across the globe in really on five continents, really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, after 20 years, uh, changed the company, which was a major change for me and started uh, as of January 2016 to work for Airbus Defense and Space. Um, being now the, the CEO for Defense and Space almost five years and in parallel since uh, a few months, since early this year, I'm also the president of the BDLI, the association for um, aerospace and space. Right. So how, how has the time basically, and I'm always interested in on why people make certain decisions and, mm -hmm. and how they end up basically being at a certain place. So you said you joined Airbus Defense and Space in 2016. Mm -hmm. So how did that come about? Like what was kind of the, the trigger for you to do this and mm -hmm. what kind of, you know, what were the, the learnings or the things that you've done prior to that mm -hmm. kind of lead to, to this? At I was in contact with Airbus already for more than two years. Um, there's a best practice exchange program where they invite people to discussions uh, for topics that are relevant, could be about China, could be about Africa. In my case, it uh, was about services. And in order really to bring people together from different industries, different uh, backgrounds, and to start discussions. So, so I knew the company pretty well. I met uh, Tom Anders, and we had a really interesting discussion. And so we connected very fast. And uh, when it was the time for them to look for a successor for Bernard Gabbard at that time, it almost happened naturally, and they, they reached out. And due to the good experience that I had already, it was a very fast decision. And of course, also influenced by um, the yeah, the opportunity to work together with Tom Enders, which I enjoyed a lot. Right. So you've been already at the company for, for a couple of years now. And, um, you know, w maybe kind of, you know, what, what tell us a little bit about, you know, th these past years. What, what are some of the, you know, m major, let's say, successes, but also challenges that mm -hmm. you had in, in that time? Yeah, I think it was, um, um, at the beginning, it was quite interesting because I came from, from outside uh, and I was very surprised. Uh, I think overall the company welcomed me pretty easy. Um, but I also had to learn, of course, the the language of the company to understand the DNA of the company. And uh, one of the interesting misunderstandings at the beginning was uh, that I was always speaking about platforms and I was speaking about introduction of software platforms. And the platform in the Airbus language is, a, is an aircraft. 
So um, at the beginning, a lot of my people were scared that uh, my intention was to change the strategy to invest into into aircraft development and next uh, uh, new design to switch rather to software solutions and uh, have a stronger focus and investment on that. And it took a while till we understood that we were to talking about different topics and then uh, it took even more time to to uh, educate our teams that the combination of both is is at the end the best solution. And this is what led at the end to what we call future combat air system. Because um, I think uh, now everyone in, in, the in our division starts to understand that on our way forward, we need more than be to be able to design and produce an aircraft. We need to be able to use the, mo the most modern IT technology to integrate it in our products and systems, to connect our different systems and create solutions that have not been used uh, so far. Yeah, as uh, you already mentioned something, so I'm really glad that you actually go into this direction because that's uh, where I also want to head. Before we kind of jump into some of the uh, actual successful projects that you uh, that you guys implemented and, and executed, um, so you, you talked about really, let's say, you know, changing the mindset, and ultimately, you know, the biggest buzzword within the last decade on a corporate level is obviously digital transformation. Mm -hmm. But um, so, how did you go about? I mean, you know. Um, if 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 we talk about kind of you know and and as well maybe kind of uh, let's let's look at the core business of mm. Airbus Defense mm. and Space right really hardware driven it's about building physical things mm. and now you come about and say okay we need to combine this as well you know with yeah. with uh, more let's say connectivity with more digital technologies with more IT mm. I mean if we think about it right. Mm. Uh, air combat combat systems always had had always some s some sort of let's say information component right there was always some sort of degree but how did you like how did you start mm. this journey basically i don't even want to yeah. say digital transformation but no but i think it's i think that's that's um probably also one of the reasons why the company hired me because i brought different uh, skills into into the job looking at digital transformation first of all i think a lot of people misunderstand digital transformation as implementing another new tool or a, a series of tools. And if you do this, you always end up having the most modern tools. But first of all, most of the time they're not integrated. If, if, if you not have adapted a, um, a couple of other activities in parallel, you end up having a lot of uh, processes in place that are not suited to be used with these new digital tools. So so what we did, we did, in my opinion, digital transformation happens in three phases. The first one is culture change, because you need to prepare the team for what is coming and why it is important to do it, so that they need to understand uh, what is in for them. Second phase is you have to analyze your processes and important is to you in analyze it end-to-end, -end, not department or function-wise because you need to optimize it for the new digital tools um, that you're going to implement so that you have faster decision-making, that you look also at uh, um, probably cleaning out your hierarchy and the different levels. You need to also clean out probably who needs to be involved in the process, um, how many stakeholders you really have that are important to take a decision. And once you have cleaned out all that, then you can start implementing the digital tools. And then it becomes quite uh, difficult because first of all, you need to have people that understand these different tools. 
if you have a, a PLM system and you need to connect it to the ERP system and connect it to uh, um, co-collaboration environment, um, then then it becomes quite scarce resource to have enough people to understand that environment, that have worked in such an environment, that know the target state, and that can help the implementation um, um, during that time. And because otherwise you become dependent on the big consulting companies that are used to introduce these kind of tools, but you need to have, let's say, the key knowledge also already inside your team. And that's, that's uh, a difficult um, task. And if you don't do it with these three phases, you always end up that you have the most modern tool, but you probably don't have the processes that, that you need in order to be really more efficient. If you do it right, I think studies show, and we have also checked it and tested it, that you can probably on a, on a development of a new product, you can save around 30% of the cost and 50% of the time. So it's worthwhile because you use, uh, instead of using prototypes, you use simulation, you use of course the digital twin, and you use um, um, modern CAD software in order to develop the different designs. So it really gives you a lot of advantages. In parallel, you, you reduce the complexity by uh, creating a target architecture where you reduce the amount of customized different software versions that you normally have in, in a big company like ours, and you bring it into a target framework where the complexity is definitely uh, reduced uh, at large scale. Yeah, and uh, I think you already, you know, you mentioned a keyword here, which is, you know, really, let's say, speed. And mm -hmm. uh, the development life cycle in, in regards to, let's say, you know, the products that the Airbus <laughs> Defense in Space is doing are quite, you know, quite long compared to others. Yeah. And the difficulty that we have, you know, when it comes to uh, digital technologies is that, you mm -hmm. know, time in an internet age is, is, is faster than in a normal. <laughs> yeah, that's, normal. that's interesting. When, when we started to develop the idea of the future combat air system, and when we looked at it and we said, okay, that, that is uh, a huge, huge task. And so the aim would be to have the system fully implemented and running in 2040 or 2045. So imagine that. When we said that, a lot of people said, we should not even start. Um, but it's it's uh, it's different. We have a demonstrator that is planned for 26, 27. Um, and if you look at uh, what's happening, if you want to introduce a system which is really state-of-the-art in 2040, um, looking from 2020, it cannot be based on the technology of 2020. This is what, what happened in the past. You start developing something, it's based on the technology that you have, and you introduce it 10, 20 years later. In this case, it cannot work anymore. So we need to to understand that in 20 years we have at least two major technology leapfrog, frogging. And uh, in this two two uh, periods, we need to adapt this, the software and the hardware in order to be incorporated into the into our final product and system. So does so this means that for the first time in our history, we need to develop uh, in an agile manner software and hardware. And we need to work with releases in order towards the 2040 goal to have the most modern system in place then. Yeah, so you mentioned it already twice, the future combat air system. Let's, mm. you know, give us a qu uh, s some key facts yeah. about that. Yeah, okay, that's, uh, yeah, it started uh, when I joined in 2016. We were, we were looking at um, a downturn of combat aircraft. We 
there was no not really a, a vision for the future of the Eurofighter. The tornado was supposed to be phased out. Um, it was a time where where we thought that that this part of our portfolio will will disappear over time. Um, at that time, also we started to see that there will be probably um, some changes in Europe. We saw the the elections coming up in Germany and in France. Um, we saw that then um, President Macron was elected. We had uh, Chancellor Merkel. We also knew that this would be a good combination for a Franco-German closer collaboration. And we were also asked uh, what topics would be important for such a cooperation. And, and one of the topics that, that was um, incorporated in, in the strategic collaboration paper that was um, um, published on 13th of July 2017 was to create a successor for the Tornado at, and we started to uh, develop it around the name Next Generation Weapon System. But we we were helping the discussion to say it has to be more than just something like the F-35. Because we were afraid that the F-35 would be dominating Europe and we wanted to uh, also make sure that we have a sovereign European solution. And we wanted to avoid to end up like uh, in the competition before that at the end we have two products or three products like in Europe, Euro Eurofighter, Rafale and Grippen. So the idea was to create something that goes beyond. Um, goes beyond then to develop just the fighter. And the idea was in today's time looking at the speed of technology changes, especially on the IT side, on software side, we need to, to include the topic of connectivity we need to be able to uh, exchange data in almost real time and to share that knowledge that the different systems can provide, analyze it and send um, selected information back to, to the systems in order to take the right decision, faster and better, with a better overview and in, in a even in congested environment. So out of that, we, we started to have a dialogue uh, with France, Germany, with different players, and it created the idea that it has to be more than, than a fighter. And out of that, we created the idea that it should be a future combat system. So in order to, to run um, a fighter jet in combination with different drones, so that you can collect the, uh, the information from the different systems, and being able to protect on one hand side the jet, but also, of course, supply information back that helps to take faster and better decisions. Yeah, one of the one of the first things that you mentioned, or the one, of one of the first things that you said uh, you were talking about, or you started talking about when you when you arrived at Airbus was platforms, and uh, yeah. you know th the key word here is ultimately you know data and and Airbus. Defense in space, or Airbus, is mm. in general as well, has been thinking about that, you know, for for a couple of years now. Yeah. And um, there, there has been uh, there's some really, really great uh, things that you know have been developed in regards to mm. really, let's say, y uh, building central platforms for for data, mm. and 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 to really enable, let's say, a central point mm. where that is collected in order to then really use that for you know putting an intelligence layer on it and and really let's say mm. finding out things. So can you can you tell us about those? Yeah, I think, you see, we, we do a lot of things where, where people don't know that we have these kind of products and offerings. For example, you see, when we talk about machine learning, AI, 
we do this for decades because uh, we provide the satellites that we use for climate change monitoring. So we do uh, everything what is needed for Earth observation, navigation, telecommunication. And uh, it is quite a complicated task for, for a computer to understand the difference between clouds and a snow-covered mountain. It needs really a very strong algorithm to identify that automatically and to um, select pictures that cannot be used from the ones that are the ones that are good quality that should be used. Uh, because this is the, the quantity that we produce is too too much in order to be done by humans. So we do this for decades already. Out of that, we created also an idea that we should uh, make that more accessible also for for uh, the consumers and this is how we created the startup in berlin which is called up 42 the idea is to make uh, high resolution data accessible for companies for individuals for new business models um, and to do it in a much faster way than we did before because most of the time we did it for governments for for countries and uh, now we wanted to create uh, the, the commercial version of it uh, also to be the core of uh, uh, a future geo-information store where we would be able to supply all data about the world where it should be also a marketplace for, for people to trade off what they do like uh, for example we, we have uh, the combination that uh, companies that develop algorithms software faster than us they're able to, to create a cooperation with us so they can train the algorithm of our data, but they supply backwards the, uh, the algorithm into the platform. So it is a, it is a new model uh, that we use um, and uh, I'm really excited about it because I believe it will be a game changer. It's, it's always, of course, it needs to, to scale and here we, we work on um, a lot of new collaborations in order to to have fast access to the platform and to, to also introduce it not only to a few selected experts but really to a global community. Yeah, and, and, and it's an amazing it's an amazing example. And the the data that that especially aerospace and space at its at has at its hand is, is really incredible. And the amount of use cases mm. uh, that that you can think about where you can use this type of data, especially with the uh, quality of data, right? Like mm. the re resolution in regards to images, but also, for example, mm. we talked about this. Uh, what I've been uh, doing mm. when I was mm. uh, when I was with you guys, and in regards to air quality data, yeah. there's so many use cases. Mm. It's incredible, mm. and I think uh, this is just the beginning because. Yeah. Um, if you really think about it in regards to also you, you said it we used to do this for govern governments right but like also for 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 private for the private sector right there's mm. so many different use cases yeah we have we have started uh, to do this or in some cases like with the application farmster where we supply uh, satellite data and analytics back to farmers so that they can improve the uh, the harvest that they know about the crop quality so uh, we, of course, we do um, um, also deforestation monitoring in order to help uh, big companies that, that um, buy, for example, from different palm oil suppliers so that they can monitor clearly that there is no deforesting happening. Um, so we have a lot of new applications. We can also do sea level monitoring so because we, of course, with the global warming, we see that it's threatening the uh, the 
the life and of course also the income of of millions of people and uh, we are able to to provide information detailed information about the development of the sea levels let's talk a little bit more about up 42 and kind mm -hmm. of the process on how this mm -hmm. came about so mm -hmm. you know um one of the major things that um that comes one of the one of the words that always comes hand in hand with you know the mm -hmm. first time that a consultancy company comes into a, mm -hmm. a large corporate and tells them that their uh, you know that their uh, next disruption phase is coming from the large tech companies in Silicon Valley was the 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 word business models right mm -hmm. new business models and mm -hmm. that that is something that a lot of these initiatives mm -hmm. that we have in every company uh, no matter whether th those are the big corporates mm -hmm. but also the more the SMEs where we are right now is always around okay so how what are new opportunities that we can build out yeah and this this is um, exactly what we did is uh, when I came and I created a new position of a DTO and uh, in that area what was new beside the normal IT and uh, I am was that we added the idea of creating new business models to have a team that looks continuously what can we do with the data to produce to create additional uh, income and revenue streams uh, we did this with um, Airbus Ariel in US and we did it here with Up42. It came out of our team, it came out uh, um, of different processes where we said we have to do something to commercialize the data that we have in order um, to create different layers um, instead of just using the, the platform and selling the platform and then others take advantage of it by selling the, the value-added services. So this was the idea behind it. We, we started to test it. Some works, some, um, some don't work. But we can see that uh, Up42 started uh, nicely and it's, it's really uh, ramping up. And this in a, in a difficult environment like COVID-19 times right now, you can still see the interest is really, really high. And I believe with the partnerships that we're creating currently, I think we will see another exponential uh, increase in the next five years. Yeah. Right. So um, are all your innovation initiatives that you have, let's say, across Airbus mm -hmm. Defense and Space organized by that DTO office? Or like what is your also mm -hmm. uh, ultimately as a CEO, what is your involvement in kind of, you know, monitoring that like, you know, no, as CEO, you always have the task, of course, to to steer up um, the creativity of the team. And uh, I think this is also my role, of course, to engage with our teams uh, on a global level. Um, of course, also engaging with companies outside of Airbus in order to to uh, stimulate new ideas, to create uh, new networks that help us to um, look at what we do from a different angle and try to see what else could we do. And this is how we created also the ideas of Airbus Ariel and, and Up42. It, uh, it is... Um, not an easy process because um, our people uh, are used to be focused on platforms, on hardware platforms, and now to to go into 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 the process of adding to the platform solutions and uh, also software solutions, and of course also to um, use the data as additional revenue streams is something that is new. And this is slowly developing now. But once it gets started, people see it works. Of course, it creates new ideas. So I'm, I'm optimistic that we will see in the future new ideas coming out of these teams because they get engaged with other teams. And uh, so you have a, 
um, uh, process where you continue to develop these things. What we're also currently doing is we're going to create um, a factory of the future concept in Munich uh, at our site uh, at in Ottobrunn-Taufkirchen. And here the idea is to create an environment where you can do crowd engineering and rapid prototyping. So, um, and not not only the hardware prototype, but including software, including um, artificial intelligence. So really creating new solutions. And um, the idea is to, um, to engage uh, also with external companies, so invite them to to that environment so you can it's like a membership so you can participate uh, co um, develop and you can also co-create but in a in a very agile and uh, nice environment so the the building is ready i've just visited it uh, a few days ago um, we will now continue to f furnish it with new offices and there will be of course also uh, good equipment like the most modern 3d printing machines um, so there will be a good environment to to foster the collaboration, not only with the big companies here in the Munich area, but also to invite then startups um, in order to really see what could be the next new idea that we can create out of out of our companies, not only in Munich. There's a starting point, but but also in a in a global um, collaboration. It's really interesting just to also to see that, you know, in, in these times that you guys are doing these type of projects, you know, and it is maybe kind of re relating to this actually in the mm -hmm. context of, you know, this year obviously has been a, a special one for uh, in, in many negative uh, aspects for, for the entire mm -hmm. world. You know, as a CEO, what was the most, let's say, what are some of the most challenging things or, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't want to mm -hmm. say things, but what are some major challenges for you that you had this year to kind of overcome? Now the biggest challenge is always if you see, um, of course, the statistics, you see the infection rates, and of course you know that uh, um, it is not uh, only uh, the people that work for us, but it's also their families and friends. Uh, the challenge for each individual was, um, in many cases, um, really, really difficult. Um, simple topics like um, that the schools were closed and uh, people still had to find ways how they could find childcare, uh, but also then our relatives or friends that, that got infected uh, to a stage where they had to be uh, go to hospital. So we have, of course, all different kind of dramas around us, and that's, that's always difficult to deal with. Huh? Um, on the professional side, I have to say our teams did a fantastic job in keeping operations up and running. And I know, th especially when you look at all these private challenges, that's not a given. Yeah. And we saw many companies that rather had complete shutdowns or they 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 started to work completely from re remote locations or home. In our case, it's difficult. We, we deliver the the most complex products and solutions um, to our governments, to our also some commercial customers. And um, they expected, uh, even despite COVID-19 times, that we deliver. And uh, we were able to do so. With that, we shouldn't forget um, that we don't do this to, to optimize the profit. This is about protecting jobs. And uh, especially here in Germany, our people worked with very high discipline. We, we uh, of course, increased the level of remote work wherever possible. 
and uh, also in the, the critical time in March, April, May, we started to introduce shift work in order to protect teams to make sure if, if someone got infected that it doesn't stop the whole production. And uh, it brought us through the year so far very well. Um, people are used to, to adapt fast. So we followed, of course, the regulations coming from the different governments. And uh, that was a challenge because uh, we have four home nations, all different regulations, uh, sometimes even varying in the different states of the, the country. And to be able to synchronize to manage the and manage the, uh, the messages coming from the government, from the unions and from the management uh, was, a, was an interesting task. I think we did okay, uh, uh, but we also had some learnings uh, through that time what we can do better. So if you reflect personally, mm -hmm. uh, what is maybe a major learning for you? Now, you saw it on LinkedIn. For me, a personal learning was already that, uh, you see, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm not used to go to a doctor. And uh, I always thought uh, if, it, if someone gets affected, it, um, it's probably not me. And then I got the infection um, two months ago and uh, I was pretty surprised how, how hard it hit me and uh, how long it took me to recover. And uh, so, so it's not a given that you can say that you will not get it even if you do precautions. And second is you don't know, it's not depending on your age, it's not depending on your health stages or how fit you are, um, how difficult it will be to pass that period. Yeah. So, so I think we have to be careful. We have to protect our loved ones, and it's it's a uh, it's it's our responsibility to make our contribution to it. Right. So let's take a little bit more of a macro uh, macro view on things. And we talked a lot about uh, you know on on on, on a, let's say on a corporate level mm. in regards to the challenges and also uh. the let's say opportunities within you know digital technologies and also anything re related to the future um, from a business mm. standpoint. Let's let's take a more let's say macro view and, and mm. let's look at Europe at, a, at its let's say it's an entire. Yeah. Um, how do you see Europe kind of like currently in the status quo? If we you know there's always a lot of comparison that uh, that is mm. being done you know b b to to China to the U.S. Yeah. when it comes to these things. But what is your personal let's say uh, no opinion on this? I st I'm I'm a strong supporter of Europe. I believe um, we are. Each of our countries in Europe is too small and too irrelevant to what's happening in, in our world. So uh, the only difference we can make is if we align and create a European position for all the different challenges, that we stick closer together, that we work closer together, that we uh, enable um, common policy making, faster policy making, that we enable rules across Europe instead of having uh, 27 national rules and, and frameworks. Um, we need also to step out of our egos and understand that uh, it means sacrifices from everyone in order to get there. But if we would do that, the outcome would be more beneficial for all the states in Europe. Um, Looking at what's happening currently, and you addressed it, of course, uh, we have to look at the, at the superpowers like US and China and, and what's happening. Happening in the trade war discussions, happening in the military discussion, 
happening on the uh, development of our wealth and uh, especially of course based on the fast development on of IT companies and platforms and here I have to say it is really worrying me to see that in Europe we're not relevant anymore uh, we we lost um, the race for towards um, significant impact uh, by IT companies all the major platforms are currently coming either from US or China, looking at uh, the area where you live. Um, and these companies influence our life to a degree that no one could have imagined 10, 10, 15 years ago. So, and here, instead of getting our act together, we have big disputes uh, how we should do it. Um, so, uh, that's, a, that's, that's really worrying because um, if you see that uh, the the wealth of our co country here in Germany is is based especially on on SMEs, it's uh, especially um, based on the domain knowledge that we have in certain areas, especially like mechanical engineering, where we have still some of the best companies in the world. But if we are not able to connect that with the fast development on IT we will lose that influence. We will lose also maybe the foundation of uh, our wealth. And uh, so it it's should be our, our best interest to really to accelerate um, and get our act together in Europe to work closer, um, spend more on these kind of topics and um, to hopefully uh, learn from the crisis that we currently face, not only the health crisis, but the economic crisis that still is is to come to a degree that we have never seen. And uh, what we see is that we went into that crisis with a pretty strong Europe, despite all the difficulties we have with Brexit and, and other topics, but, but still with, with a compet competitive situation, except for IT platform. And uh, we have to be careful that we don't come out of the crisis weaker than we came into it. Um, looking at what's happening in, in on the globe, we the experience is that US has always mastered these kind of challenges. Um, at the end, maybe it look, doesn't look like now, but but at the end, they have come out of these crises pretty pretty fast and strong. Also, because there's a big mix between the government support and also private companies that can really boost um, and, and accelerate uh, economic growth. Um, China, um, I don't, don't know if you have seen, they recently announced uh, to invest $1.4 trillion into innovation. Not talking about support for uh, prolongation of short work or other activities in order to stabilize the current environment, but really dedicated to innovation. And that at a level where you see, we see that China has changed from being the extended workbench of the world to be an innovation hub. Um, and uh, now to put this huge investment on top of that to ensure that the acceleration out of the crisis is faster than other areas of the world is, is, is worrying for Europe. Because what we also see is discussion between what we have seen on Trump's side is that uh, we are rather a collateral damage than uh, important enough to be on the table to discuss um, how, how we can solve these kind of trade issues. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, a lot of things that I could drag to, but I think, you know, kind of going back to the first things that you said, you know, Europe at its, uh, with its individual countries not being strong enough, you know, and I think 
to be honest, uh, to some degree, um, if there's two things that you can look at, right? Mm. So one, if you look from uh, from from what this year, for example, mm. on how countries reacted, right? We, I mean, even uh, we, we we had individual like the differences in regards to how we reacted to the crisis. You know, mm. that is one point, right? Why don't we have like one singular decision, right? Or if you look from a technology perspective, right? If we say AI is so important, why do we have national uh, strategies, right, which differ? Why don't we have one single European strategy? Know, this is just a, a couple of things to add here. Yeah, and if you see also the funding for AI, we, we all agree AI is super important for our future, but if you if you throw pocket money after it, it will not make a difference. Yeah. Uh, so if you see the amount of money that is invested in, in, in US or in China compared to what we, if we would all European countries put together, we don't do anything in Europe. Yeah. Uh, so, so even now the... Um, let's say additional efforts uh, that we see in France and Germany, if you if you look at the, the financing behind it, it's not relevant. And unfortunately, these kind of things need severe funding in order to get accelerated. Yeah. Th another aspect is probably, which um, you did not really mention, but which I also, um, you know, had observed and also mm. kind of, uh, kind of talked about in a lot of conversations as well it's more or less the mindset that we have as a society mm. overall right and uh, i think if we compare mm. for example the the overall mindset um in in in, in for example china mm. or the states right there's always some sort of hunger that is driving people yeah, to go yeah, the sure. extra mile yeah when i we lived there as a family three and a half years and um at that time a lot of my people that worked really, really hard, they had a second job. Because the ultimate goal that they had, they wanted to have what we have. They wanted to have a car, they wanted to be able to rent a nice apartment or a house, and they wanted to be able to, to travel with the families, and of course to give uh, a better life to their kids. So they worked double, triple hard in order to, to get there. And this is sometimes what we forget here is that we live on a very high standard and uh, we find a lot of topics to complain of. But uh, there are other people in the world that are far from that standard and they want to have that standard. And they're willing to work double, triple in order to get there. And this, this hunger that you just mentioned is, is what is endangering that we keep our position. So, so if we lose that, uh, that uh, benchmark, if we are not understanding how fast others and how hard other people will try to get what we have, then we will lose the competition. One one uh, interesting uh, sentence that I heard uh, not long ago was, you know, Europe also has, you know, a lot to lose, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, if you are already in a, if, if the system that you're basically part of, you know, allows you to be to be in a s you know in a comfort zone which is let's say really really big right it is natural for the human being to you know obviously not want to leave that comfort zone sure basically that stretch that requires you know or that is required to go a step forward right is is becomes way way harder now that's why it is the responsibility of the government but also of the industry to uh, be clear on communication um, the advantage today with social media and the speed of information, no one can really say that 
the he or she doesn't know what's happening in the world. So if you're interested, you can have access to information. So that's different than like 20 years ago where, where you needed to go somewhere to understand what's happening. I think there there's a big advantage today that, that you can have access to information whenever you want. But of course, I think the most helpful is when you travel, when you see with your own eyes how fast um, and how, how, how dedicated people work in order to, to provide change. And the hunger that you just described, if you see that with your own eyes, you wake up and you start thinking maybe we need to work harder to get and keep our status that we have. And I think uh, Europe um, could be of much bigger relevance. We have uh, almost 500 people in the European Union. Uh, we, we have a diversity that others are envying us and we have proven to, to be uh, innovative, successful in many areas. Um, so if we overcome the individual egoism that we believe that nationalism and populism will, will help us through this time, uh, then we could create uh, something that is much bigger and would have much bigger impact on a, on a global stage. Because uh, our market is big enough if it's one market, but today it's not one market. Right. So kind of uh, looking at the time, maybe as a closing note, um, I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, I want to, you know, kind of let you go here with, uh, you know, with, with really sharing maybe a personal prediction, even though prediction might sound really, let's say, definite, but I think it's a good word to use in the sense that if you look at, at if you look at, you know, at what happened this year mm -hmm. and also the overall view and, and the different views that we took during this conversation, what is something that you look in for next year that that you kind of, you know, on reflecting on, on all these things where you believe we're heading, you know, on mm -hmm. it can be on a, you choose, right, on whatever okay. um, dimension that is. No, I think 21 will not look so much different than 2020. Um, we will still need a while to stabilize the, the health crisis, even if a vaccination is coming out soon. Um, Till that leads to the effect that we would like to see will take some time. So we will have restrictions, in my opinion, well into 21. Um, with that, of course, also an impact on the economy. Uh, we have still a lot of our nations putting additional efforts in order to stabilizing 21. So uh, also, of course, with supporting measures like short work, extension and so on. But um, yeah, we will see that we slowly recover from the health crisis. And in my opinion, from 22 onwards, we will move into a much larger economic crisis than many people think. Um, also regarding um, the loss of jobs that cannot be um, saved even with the, with the support measures that we have put in place. Um, so I think the, the tension will rise um, and we have seen that um, that uh, even in 28, 29, where the reason was rather small compared to what we see right now in face right now, it was already a, a tremendous impact to the economy. Um, here we know it will be larger than that and uh, it's um, still to come. And this is what worries me, that a lot of people believe that, um, that we manage it pretty okay. I think we will still see effects and we need to prove that we can hold together 
work together and that uh, we can support each other on through the time that we still will face. Thanks, Dirk, for being on the show. It was really a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me.